Uh, well, I'm really excited to be here and talk about contentment this week. We'll just go there next. Um, I'm bad at getting notes to the secretary in time. And so if you want a more complete set of notes at some point, like some of you are note takers. I feel you. And you like, if you don't write everything down, your soul crumbles a little bit. So I've taken, you have a blank sheet, I have pretty basic outline. But if you want more than that or you don't get to write everything down, if you go to my Twitter, there's a blog post where I have like a handout. And I'm sorry about that. But I'll try to put those up every day if there's like extra quotes or things. I'm also going to recommend a book every day. So in preparation for the series on contentment, I read four books on contentment <clears throat> and then did a bunch of biblical study. And it was really helpful. It was nourishing for my own soul. And so I'm going to be recommending books every day that I think you should consider purchasing. If, you, if we talk about something and you think, I really do need to learn more about contentment, uh, these books would all be good. I'll tell you about each one of them, so maybe you want to hear about a few of them uh, before you go and, and buy one. So there will be a link there. There will be a link to the podcast episodes if you want to listen to them. Um, but I hope this serves you this week, and I hope this is helpful for you. Uh, so, yep, I'm Andy. I'm married. My wife Robin is over there, but I'm not going to say anything because she doesn't like to be the center of attention, so don't look over at her. I have two kids, a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, and they've been waiting for camp since last year. They love camp, so we're really excited to be here. They are so energetic, and every night they're exhausted, which is great. <laughs> Am I right, parents? Am I right? Okay. So just to give you a heads up on how this is going to look, it's going to be a little bit like class and a little less like preaching. So you're going to have to imagine for a moment you're doing a study. So kind of what we're going to do this week is a group Bible study on the topic of contentment. So we'll go through definitions and we'll talk about what other people have written and we'll say, we'll look at a whole bunch of verses. Tonight, um, you we're going to be in a lot of single verses, so if you're like one of those people who hates flipping, I've got all the verses on the screens for you tonight, and you can write them down and go back to them later. But what we want to do is we do three things. I want to say, what's the world say when it talks about contentment? Does the world even talk about it? And if you were to go online and say, hey, what is contentment and how can I have it, and you didn't look at any Christian resources, what might you find? We're going to look at that at the beginning. And then we're just going to do a study on what contentment means. And so I've got some information there. And then I want to talk about the foundation of contentment. And that is where the contentment the Bible offers us is completely different than the contentment you might find discussed in the world. The foundation is what makes all the difference. And that's when our study gets theological, which I think is excellent. So let's go ahead and open prayer, and then we're going to actually look at some worldly examples of how they would talk about contentment. Father, we love you. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for this time where we can be together and we can study this topic. Lord, I pray that you'd give us sharp minds this week. I pray that we would enjoy this. I pray that we would long for this. And I pray, Father, that this material from your word, God, would address needs and issues that we have in our souls. Father, I pray that tonight, maybe we would learn if contentment is an issue in our own souls. I know when I studied this, I didn't realize this would be such a nourishing and helpful thing for me. I pray that it would be that way for many tonight. I pray that this week, Lord, perhaps some would even decide that they want to study contentment on their own and get some of these resources and do personal studies in this area. Thank you, God, that you give us your word, which is inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient to address all of our life's issues. 
Father, we love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's go. Oops, one more thing. If I don't start a stopwatch on my phone, I will never stop speaking. That's okay, we had to, hey, who said that? Yeah, two, two points for you, all right. <laughs> I like you, <laughs> I give you an A. All right, so let's talk about what the culture says about contentment. Now, I didn't do a really, it's really funny, if I want to know what the world says about something and I'm teaching about it, I usually just go on to Google and type in the word and then stuff comes up. And this time, oddly enough, it was mostly Bible websites, which surprised me. So I went to the next best, best option if I want something worldly. I pulled up my Pinterest account. And I haven't used my, sorry, to take a shot at Pinterest, but if you want recipes, it's good too. Now I haven't used Pinterest in like 11 years. I think it was a joke the first time I used it. So I opened it up. I didn't find anything there either. So I tried searching with a couple of different words, and I found two places that talked about contentment in a way that I thought was substantive. So we're just going to look at those two. The first example is going to come from a website called Psychology Today. Psychology Today. Now, this is the psychological, the American Psychological Association's website, and so they're going to give you secular philosophy that's going to answer questions. Now, I want to talk to you about psychology for two seconds. Well, more than that. Psychology generally is hit or miss and okay when it observes a problem. Hey, humans experience fear in these situations under these conditions. Humans do this because they do studies and they watch how people respond in those situations. The problem comes in is when they try to answer the why question. Why does a human do that? Because their foundation in addressing that is naturalistic, which is to say secular and evolutionary. So for them, I'm essentially a very evolved animal. And so I behave like an animal just in a more complex way. So they have a, a little page, like a wiki article on their website about contentment. So I just want to read this. Um, if you want the entire quote, it's on that handout, but it, I just, just catch what you want. People feel discontentment because they think something is lacking in their lives or they wish that things were different. I would agree with that. Think about the times you feel discontentment. Don't, like, this is not like a, a confessional, but when have you felt real discontentment in your life? I would wager that it probably is because something is lacking that you desire, or perhaps a situation in your life has turned out one way and it's not the way you wanted. Well, I actually think that's not wrong. I think they've sort of observed what happens. Many people can't achieve happiness with what they have, even if they have means that can provide thrills. They might buy a new car that makes them excited for a few days, or they might buy a bigger and better house and feel happy for a few weeks. We can achieve lasting happiness and contentment by choosing to embrace life rather than fighting it. Now I want you to notice something about this. We're going to read, there's going to be three sections of this quote. Do you notice all the desire language in there? This is all about your desires. It's unmet desires. It's desires that you long after. And they're essentially trying to deal in those desires. How do we satisfy those? How do we take care of those? And the, what's their answer? What's their gospel? What's their good news to deal with unmet desires or desires that won't materialize? It's to accept it, right? You just need to accept it. Okay, so now we kind of understand what they're saying. 
And I don't know about you, have you ever bought something that you thought would make you happy and then it didn't? Have you ever had buyer's remorse? When I was in sixth grade, I think, the Sega Game Gear came out. Now, nowadays we have like all the video games we want on our phones, but you've got to understand I'm 42 people, so some of you don't understand this, and some of you do. There used to be portable gaming systems like a Nintendo DS or a Game Boy, but this one was color. And it had a game I really liked or I wanted to play that I wasn't allowed to, Mortal Kombat, where you could punch people and then rip their heads. It was so gross. But it was also like 16-bit pixels, and so like, what is that? Oh, it must have been blood. You know, Nowadays, it's like an anatomy lesson. It's really bad. So I really wanted that, and I eventually got it for Christmas. I was so excited, and it took, I'm not joking, six hours of playing it. And I was like, this is not that good. But I couldn't admit that to my parents. Because I had begged them for this Game Gear. I thought it would make me happy if I had this one thing. I would finally have a life that was complete. Yeah, now I'm like sixth, sixth grade, you know, sense. So I sort of understand that. I sort of get that. Their solution to me would be just to accept it. Embrace that. Let's see how the, the, the quote keeps going. When we allow ourselves to flow with life, just flow with it, everybody, Okay. It becomes beautiful adventure, whether we're cleaning the house. Now, how many of you cleaning the house have just accepted it, and then it became a beautiful adventure? <laughs> I don't know anyone who that's been the case, except for that, um, that movie, Enchanted, where they're like singing and dancing the whole time. I mean, like, okay. But in real life, like, oh, I really don't like scrubbing the floor. I just need to accept it. This is, I'm going on an adventure! You know, you're like, that's, okay, I, I, I don't know, that's, that's not... Great. <clears throat> when we fight life, we become discontent. Whether you have means or you don't, we're all capable of finding happiness and peace. Because even though life doesn't guarantee us wealth, it does provide us with the ability to love what we currently have and enjoy our lives through the struggles. Now, I would say, I'm not trying to be too critical of this, but here, contentment for them is defined as just flowing with your life. Just get into a flow state. Now, just consider what kind of struggles this would fit with. Something happened, you made an investment, and something went backwards, and you now face financial ruin. If I tell you, you just need to flow with it, and that financial ruin will be like you're going on an adventure. Is that going to work for you? I'm not trying to be too critical, I'm not trying to be too haughty, but... This seems pretty shallow if you're really serious. Like, think about someone with a massive health issue. You just need to flow with it. Um, a year ago today, a very good friend of mine's seven-year-old kid was unexpectedly killed. Could I tell him, hey, you just need to flow with it, friend? I don't think so. I don't think this works. And that's because even though psychology can sometimes observe the problem, the why, they don't have the tools to answer the why in a way that the Bible does. Now, the quote ends like this. Contentment doesn't mean we can't strive for better. Whoa, 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 whoa. hold on, hold on. <laughs> okay, accept it as it is, just flow with it. You can also strive to make it better, though. Wait, have you ever, like, I mean, my kids aren't here yet, but I was like this. You know, you ever, like, arguing with your parents that you want something? And you say something, and then they say, no, no, no. And then you say this, and they're like, wait, you said that, and you know you're caught. Uh, I'm ca uh, and you just keep going. <laughs> you flow with it, right? 
Okay, this seems like a, it's going the other direction. Okay. But it's important to recognize that when we can't change things in the moment, the only road we can travel down is acceptance. Okay, so we try to change, but if we can't, we just flow. I still think there's some issues in life where you can't have contentment on this definition. There's some problems that contentment will always be out of reach. If we cultivate this contentment daily, hourly, moment by moment, we'll be able to easily access it whenever we want, and our lives will be rich with peace and happiness. Again, what if someone had gotten really behind on their bills, they had their car repossessed, they couldn't afford public transportation to get to work, and they lost their job, and now they can't find anything close to them? And I said, well, have you tried to get a job? Have you tried to change it? Yes, I can't do it. You just need to accept it. Just flow with it. Isn't life an adventure? I don't think this advice is very deep or very helpful. Now, I want to look at another site that I found, Mayo Clinic. Now, this is a little more analytical. Okay, this is like a, we a medical website. Um, I'm actually banned from this website. And WebMD. <clears throat> Because anytime anything happens, my family's, I hear my, someone I know over there laughing. Anytime I get any sort of an ailment, I'm on WebMD and I'm going to die. My finger's like tingly. I'm having a heart attack. My eye is twitching. I'm having a seizure. I mean, it's all, I mean, I'm immediately to the worst case. So I'm, I've actually been banned from the site. But here's an exception. All right. So they gave you, they give you six, um, like, axioms. And each one of these had like a paragraph description. So first thing, you ought to invest in relationships. That's a way to become content. Invest in relationships. Express gratitude. You need to be thankful. Be thankful for what you have. Cultivate optimism. Oh, there's five things. Sorry, I think I said six. Eh, math, you know. All right, cultivate optimism. Again, I just, how would that work in like a third world country where no one has food? Just be optimistic. It sounds a little bit like a preacher down south whose name rhymes with Paul Jostein. <laughs> Find your purpose. Well, I guess if I'm Friedrich Nietzsche and everything's nihilistic and existential, I can just make my own purpose. But what if there's no purpose? What if I'm an evolved animal and I'm just going to die one day and my memory's gone and eventually the universe dies in a heat death? There's no purpose. And then live in the moment. You know, I'm a child of the 80s and the 90s, and this one sounds familiar. I don't know where I've heard this one before. I'm not sure. So, now some, of you, some of you are like, oh yeah, I remember that, back in the 90s. So what's interesting, I think, about these is, let's, let's ask, what's the answer? Invest in relationships, that's a change your situation. You're not content, go out and invest in people and see if you can change your situation. Okay, so that's a change something external answer. Express gratitude. I'm not really sure. I, I think it's just to have a positive mindset. Maybe accept your situation and find out what you can be thankful for about it. Cultivate optimism. Have like an accepting, positive outlook. Find your purpose. So if that's internal, I don't know, then it goes external. It's like a, I don't know about that one. And then live in the moment. I don't know. That's just like pure, I don't know, moment by moment living. So if we're looking at these two, and admittedly it was a small study, I think we've got two big ideas, two big answers that the world would give us. Number one, if you want to be content, you need to do something to change your circumstances. 
How can you make your life different the way, like, can you invest in relationships? Can you have a better outlook? Can you try to adjust things and improve things? And if that doesn't work, you need to change the interpretation of your circumstances. Yeah, you've ruined yourself and you're never going to get a job again, but couldn't you see the bright side? Is there another way to handle that from a meaning level and interpret it? <clears throat> what I want to offer this week is, I think, something better than what the world can offer us. I think the way the Bible talks about contentment, the way it handles the foundation and the essence of contentment, is something that is, um, it's like a cup of cold water for your thirsty soul. You may not realize you're struggling with discontentment right now, because we're steeped in a culture that's a consumer culture. Advertisers are always, we talked, me and Steve talked about this yesterday, advertisers are always trying to show you how bad your life is and how much better your life could be if you just had their product. The problem is we don't always go out and buy those products, but now we know our life's not as good as it could have been. So you're watching television and commercial comes on and it's this beautiful beach. And you can tell it's a beach in Michigan, because there's no sharks. And there's no salt water. It's just a wonderful beach. And there's this little boy and this little girl, and they're playing in the sand, and they're really cute and adorable, and completely compliant and obedient. And mom and dad comes out, and it's kind of like Ken and Barbie. And they're all playing together. It's the happiest family you've ever seen. And you know what you start saying? Man, I wish my family was that happy. And then they're just having a good time, and the kids love the parents, the parents love the kid, and you're like, oh man, I wish my kids, or I wish my parents. And you're thinking about how good life could be, and then you hear the sound. Ding! And the camera pans over to a weirdly freestanding pizza oven in the middle of the beach. Why is there a pizza? It's like a dream where things are just where they shouldn't be. And then the family all smiles, their white, teethy smiles, and they run over and they pull this... DiGiorno or something, pizza, and they all eat the pizza. On the, it's like the best thing ever. Never mind the complete insanity of what that would be. What did they do to you? They did something to you. They got in your soul, and they said, your life could be better. But it's not. It's not as good as it could be. Don't you want your life to be better? They're literally tempting you to discontent. And we get hit with this every day, all day long. It's part of the cultural air we breathe. Okay, so that's the culture. So let's talk about, oh yeah, but what if there was a true satisfaction that you could have that's independent of those circumstances? That's what we're going to offer this week. Do you want true satisfaction that you can have independent of what's going on around you? In fact, you know that... that meme of the cartoon dog sitting drinking coffee and the whole like room is on fire and he's like this is fine that's like biblical contentment okay not quite but in a sense what happens outside of you doesn't upset what goes on inside of you okay so let's talk about that let's define contentment the essence of contentment is it internal or external i'm going to make the case that it's internal and we're just going to do like weird study stuff now just dictionary stuff so, I've done the study, you can pay attention, but this is good. All right, let's have two definitions. <clears throat> the first one is just the dictionary. Man, it's really good to start in the dictionary if you're talking about a word. What are we even talking about? Contentment, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is a state of happiness 
and satisfaction. That's really not that far off. Satisfaction, when it comes to the Bible, there's a lot of places where people are satisfied, and that's what the Bible's talking about with contentment. The, the question about happiness, though, is can you be happy at the same time you're sad? Those two are sort of mutually exclusive. You're either one or the other. Now, Christians are pretty clear that you can have joy when you're sad. Joy is something that's internal. Happiness is generally based on your circumstances. So I would say this is a mediocre to okay definition, but there's some, some of it we want to tweak. Now I'm going to do something that no preacher wants to do. I'm going to talk about Greek. So you don't need to know this. You could look this up in a commentary, but I teach Greek, and so I just want to point something out here. The word contentment that comes up in a number of passages we're going to look at, if you looked it up in the Greek dictionary... This is how it would be defined. And I think it's important for us to notice the difference. Contentment is a state of being content with one's circumstances. Now that's weird because you're defining the word and you're using the word in the definition. That's because it's a different word in Greek. But you could change that for satisfaction. And you're, you're satisfied with one's circumstances. Or you're, you're okay with it. Or you're, you're, you're uh, taking it seriously. And I don't want to say too much because I want to define it. But you're sort of trusting God in that. Now, there's two key verses where this shows up. There's more, but we'll start here. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The, the idea of contentment almost has this self-sufficiency idea. Now, <laughs> if I say that person's so self-sufficient, is that a compliment or not a compliment? What do you think? If you're self-sufficient, is that a good thing as a Christian or a bad thing? So I think some people think bad. I think some people think, yeah, but if you're responsible and you're taking care of your needs, okay. So there's kind of this distinction here. Here, it, the sense is more like, no matter what's going on around me, I'm, I'm sort of self-sufficient. I'm not reliant on those external situations. So, I mean the burning down meme joke. The, the point is, like something happens out there that doesn't upset what's going on in here, even though I might be sad and I might be concerned, but there's a not upsetting what's inside of me. Uh, Philippians 4.11, and this is the main passage we'll be at tomorrow night, says this, Paul's saying, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned whatsoever situation I am in to be content. Now, Paul was definitely handling his situation really well, and you've got to wonder why he could do that, because he was under house arrest when he wrote that. Like, literally, in chained to a Roman soldier. But contentment means he can handle this. How can he handle that? How could you handle that? How could you go through a really hard time, go through all the emotions, go through all the difficulties, and yet be content? How is that possible? That's what we want to talk about. All right, so we've looked at a couple definitions. Let's look at some modern authors. So I've read a bunch of books. I'm just going to give you a couple of definitions that they use. This book is Chasing Contentment by Eric Raymond. This book is really cool. So Eric Raymond's a pastor, and he went through a season in life that was kind of difficult, and then he identified, I think I'm struggling with contentment. And so he did a deep dive study on it, and this book resulted from that study. I really like his definition. He, he says this, contentment is that inward, now notice the internal language. It's internal. It's not based on the external. That inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. Ooh, now it's getting good. 
what's God's providence? Well, we'll talk about that, but it's theology. It's what the Bible says about God's character. That's actually where we're going to end. So this definition is saying, I can be content because I'm resting in God's character. This is where the definition of biblical contentment is different than the world's. Because the foundation of biblical contentment is the character of the God that you believe in. It's the character of your God. If your God is who he says he is, you can be content. William Barclay wrote this book, The Secret of Contentment. Now, these are both recent books. I think they both come out in the last... Eric Raymond's came out like two years ago, and I think The Secret of Contentment came out in 06, I want to say. Secret of Contentment is my favorite. I'm going to recommend four books this week, but I really like that book. It, is, it was balm for my soul. It was just really good. But he actually doesn't give you a definition. He uses this really old one from a guy by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote in like 1640-something. So we're actually going to shift over and look at some older authors now. What I want to point out here, though, is I really like what he says. Contentment is that inward spirit that rests in God's providence. So we got to know what God's providence is to understand what contentment is. All right, here's a couple of old authors. Jeremiah Burroughs writes this book. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you've ever read a book, I haven't read very many, that's older than like 300 years, they had like the best titles because the titles were really long and then you look at the table of contents and you essentially read the table of contents and you almost, you do. But you almost don't need to read the book to know where it's going. He says it like this, and I really like this. Now he's writing in 1648. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to. Now, I like that. There's submission involved in contentment. Freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. When he talks about God's wise and fatherly disposal, he's saying God is this wise father who controls the situations of my life in a way that I know I can trust. And I'm going to submit to that and actually delight in what God does. I really like that definition. There's one more I want to look at. Thomas Watson, he wrote The Art of Divine Contentment of the old books. I like Watson a little better. Now, if you've ever read like an old book like Shakespeare, it's going to sound kind of like that. So I would start with one of the two modern authors and then go back to these old guys. The old guys are worth working through. But he says it like this. Contentment is a sweet temper of the spirit whereby the Christian carries himself in equal poise in every condition. Whereby the Christian carries himself in equal poise in every condition. Condition there means circumstances. Bad things happen. Good things happen. Difficult things happen. Happy things happen. But there's a steadiness inside of you that trust that God is providentially in control. At this point, I want to go to the foundation of contentment now. The foundation. Now here's where I want to study the character of God with you. Everything that we've just said as far as how you should define and think about contentment only works if the God of the Bible is who he says he is. If he is then contentment is possible in very difficult situations. If he's not, contentment is going to be out of reach, and you're going to have that just accepted or flow with it answer. That's all you're going to have. So let's look at the foundation. There's going to be three big ideas. The first big idea 
Our first aspect of God's character is his omnipotence and his providence. Omnipotence and providence. Omnipotence just means that he's all-powerful. How many of you knew that word already? Okay. It's somewhat, I don't know, sometimes in church you pick that stuff up. Anytime you can say, God's all-powerful, how could we say that with fancy words, like in Latin? You can make that up, and then it sounds very technical. Like, instead of saying God's wrath-removing sacrifice, we can say propitiation. And it sounds really good, doesn't it? So don't let the terms intimidate you. God's all-powerful. Now, there's some verses that we could go to. I'm going to put them all up on the screen. Again, if you want to write the verse references down or just get the notes later. Look at what these verses show us about the character of God. Genesis 1.3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's good for you as a Christian just to pause and think, when's the last time I said for something to exist, and it existed? It's never happened for me, except as a figment of my imagination. But imagine the fact that everything that does exist, all of space, all of time, all of matter, all of energy, Everything that the James Webb telescope is showing us in these new pictures, all of that happened by God saying, be. And it was. That's how powerful God is. Psalm 33, 6 actually talks about this. David praises God and says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the starry hosts were the breath by the breath of his mouth. So both of these passages are talking about the fact that God is so powerful, he created everything with just a word. If that is what God can do with the whole universe, do you think he's lost track of what's happening right now in our lives? I think as Christians, we forget that. And that's part of what our discontent is sourced in. Job 42.2, I know that you, that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Do you remember the moment when Job says this? If you haven't read Job in a while, just read chapter 1 and 2. I know the middle part is really important. But then skip to 48 or 38 and just read the rest of it. Job has gone through a horrible situation. He's lost everything and he has a horrible disease. And he has not sinned to deserve this. And all his friends are saying, Job, you obviously have a secret sin. Come on, man, fess up. And he's like, I don't. I don't know what's happened. I wished I could ask God. I wished I could. Does he see me? Does he know? Like he's really... He doesn't know why. Doesn't God see that he's been faithful and he loves him and he served him? And now look at him going through this horrible situation. And God says, okay, let me, let me answer your question. You want to know why? Okay, let me answer. And he never tells him why, but it's, it's two or three chapters of, look what I've done, look what I've done, look what I've done. And it's all about creation. And he's like, Job, were you there when I marked off the width of the heavens? Were you there when I put the mountain's roots in the ocean. Were you there? Were you there? And Job was never there. And at the end, he realizes, oh, God is all-powerful. Nothing is out of God's control. Job lost everything. Job's horribly ill with this terrible disease. God is not out of control. God is wise, and anything God does can't be thwarted. God is omnipotent. Numbers 11.23, the Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not the, what the Lord has said will come true. We're going to be in this passage on Tuesday or Wednesday. It's hard to get the days straight here. The children of Israel were begging for something other than manna. Well, the rabble was. And they were all complaining. And Moses is like, God, what am I going to do? And God's like, give them meat to eat. He's like, I can't do that. How is that even possible, God? And he's like, really? 
Is my arm too short, Moses? And he feeds them all meat. So he's all-powerful. Daniel 2.21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. The Bible is clear that God is all-powerful. All right, God is also providential. So providence is God's continuing action to preserve his creation and guide it toward its intended purpose. His continuing action to preserve his creation and guide it to its intended purpose. Now this one, there's plenty of verses. We'll just go with one here, though. Romans 8.28. This is pretty familiar. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The believer understands that nothing that happens is out of God's control. I think we that's one of those truths, omnipotence and providence. When you put those together, it's sort of what we mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. This is a, book, a teaching that I think if we quizzed Christians, we would always get the answer right. Is God all-powerful? Yes. Does God providentially control all things? Yes. Is God sovereign? Yes. Is everything going okay in your life? Oh my word, it's so bad. I have no idea why. I've been praying like this is terrible. And there's a disconnect between the character of the God we serve and the way we live our lives, almost forgetting that. So contentment can't be possible unless we realize that the God whom we are going to trust in is all-powerful at all times. But that's not the only character of God we need for a biblical understanding of contentment. We also need to understand that God's two other aspects of his character, his goodness and his love, his goodness and his love. God is good. Now again, I think on a quiz, if I gave you a quiz, is God good? Check yes for, or A for yes or no for you. Check. You'd all get 100% on that. The Bible says, if I can get the clicker to work, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is when uh, the teacher comes, the rabbi comes to him, or the, the ruler says, hey, good, good teacher, blah, blah, blah. And why do you call me good? Don't you know that only God's good? This would have been a normal thing in rabbinic Judaism. They would have known that the only truly good person is God. Uh, Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who take refuge in him. Now notice the two sides of that poem or poetic statement. David is saying, hey, I'm not just going to tell you God's good. I'm going to say, hey, taste. Like, try this out. Test, test God. And see those who put their refuge in him. He takes care of them. They're blessed if you take refuge in God. Try it. I dare you. God is good. So David is so confident in the goodness of God, he tells you to try it out. Like, taste taste, and see that God is good. And then in 1 Chronicles 16.34, Oh, thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That one is, it's kind of the generic example. You hear that often throughout the scriptures. So we know that God is good. We also need to know that God is love. John 3.16, everybody knows this verse. For God so loved the world. Oh, sorry, I read it wrong. Well, I memorized it in the King James, I think, way, way back in the day. I'm going to read it in the CSB, though, because I want to point something out. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Most translations say, for God so loved the world. And growing up, I always thought it meant like, like, how much do you love whatever? I love it 
this much. You know, I love it so much. And so was like this big adjective for a lot. What he's actually saying is this man, like this is the way God loved us. How did God love us? This is the way he loved us, by sending his son to die for us. Now that's still saying the same thing, but it's with a picture. Notice the next verse we have, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. So how could God be more loving? He laid down his life for his children. So God is good, God is loving, God is omnipotent, and God providentially controls all things. That's a pretty good picture of God's character. Now the question that should be percolating in your mind is can you trust that God? Can you trust him? This is the question we want to ask this week. Can I trust God? The God who is all-powerful over every event that's going on in my life. You realize that nothing happens unless God either says, this is what's happening, or I'll allow it. And there are some, of you, some people who would say, no, it's only this one over here. But either way you take it, nothing is outside of God's control. That'd be really scary if God wasn't good. Just for a moment, don't scare yourself too much, but just for a moment, imagine a being that's all-powerful, totally sovereign, and wicked. And imagine that's the one that we would meet one day when we die. That's the one who's overseeing all of the universe right now. Can you imagine how bad that would be? But we serve a God who is all-powerful and all-good, and he loves us. There's one more aspect of his character. And I think this is the one that will hit a little close to home. God is an insomniac. <laughs> I don't struggle with insomnia. I hit, my head hits the pillow and I sleep all the way through the night. Sometimes I wake up in the night for a little bit if I'm really anxious about maybe preaching at camp for two weeks. Um, but you know, as long as I got my stuff done ahead of time, which I didn't this week. Anyways, all that to say, some people though, struggle with something called insomnia where you can't sleep really well. I have a friend, a very close friend, and uh, he does not sleep well. He gets maybe two, three hours a night. And the nights where he really doesn't get, like sometimes he gets four or five and it's really good, sometimes six if he's lucky. But man, when he's only got two or three, he's frenetic, he's a little jittery, and it's really taxing on his system. And if you struggle with insomnia, you know what that's like. You just want to sleep and your body won't let you. And it's bad. There's no one I know, except for people who sleep well and make jokes about productivity, who want insomnia. Oh, I wish I didn't sleep like you, then I could get more done. But no insomniac or person who struggles with insomnia thinks that. They just want to sleep. But our God, it's actually a good thing. He never sleeps. He's never asleep. So Psalm 121, this is personally a very meaningful psalm to me. Our family went through some difficult waters a couple years ago, and a friend of mine gave me this. Uh, he texted it to me, and it was, it was what got me and my wife through this very difficult time. And so in the psalm, David says this. He says, I lift up my, high, my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Now notice right there, you have theology about God. He is the creator God. Within that sentence, he created heaven and earth is the fact that he's omnipotent and all-powerful. 
He will not let your foot be moved. Okay, so he's going to protect you. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And then it goes on to say more good things. I just want to talk about the slumber and sleep thing here. This is an anthropomorphism. God's not like, the sleep thing is a non-issue. But it's a picture of the fact that God's never unaware. So slumbering, if I get this right, and I think commentaries disagree, the slumber idea is maybe leaning a little more to like uh, nodding off when you're supposed to be doing something. So uh, some of you are doing that right now. Nope, I'm not offended. It's, it happens to me every day when I teach class. It's no big deal. Um, but you know how that is. You're doing something and you're, you find yourself nodding off and, and, then, and it, oh, then all of a sudden you jerk awake. And you're like, how long was I out? I don't know what happened. One time in high school, I fell asleep on my math book in algebra. And I woke up, and I don't know how long I was out, but I had a drool line this long on my notepad. And, and I looked up, and the teacher looked at me. I think he noticed. Now that I'm a teacher, he definitely... I can, you can see everything up here. <laughs> when students are trying to text in class, they're always like... I see you. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, yeah, so slumbering is maybe the idea that he nods off and he just misses something. Or he doesn't sleep, and that's the idea of like you go to sleep all night and you're just dead to the world and you don't know what happened until you wake up. I know someone, oh, I just saw the time, I'll hurry. I know someone who had a really horrible diagnosis at 16 years old. His father had died at 40 of some specific uh, condition he had, and the doctor said, hey, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but you should get tested for that because that's hereditary. So the guy gets tested, he's got the same condition. So at 16 years old, he was told, you're going to die by 40. Now, if you're a, you're a good guy and, and, and you're upstanding and you want to do the right thing, what do you do about marriage? Well, he decided, I'm not going to marry anybody because if we have kids, I'm just going to pass this on and then this person's going to be a widow. And so denied himself, picked up his cross, and didn't get married. And it was a rough, rough life. And... He's like 49 years old, just waiting for it to happen. And he goes to the doctor, and the doctor's like, um, something or other. And it's a new doctor, and he says, oh, I've got this condition. And he's like, really? Oh, we should test that and just see where it's at. And they give him a test. The doctor's like, you don't have that. Yeah, I don't know what happened, man. I'm really sorry to tell you that, but you don't have that at all. I don't know if that was a misdiagnosis. Now, you're that guy. What do you do? You go out and get married. <laughs> So he went out, met someone, got married. And four years later, that person left him for like this person going to Hollywood trying to make it big and never turn. And, and so here the guy is, he's like 55, and he's had a horrible life. And do you know how he dealt with that? He took a position on God's nature called open theism. Open theism says God, sorry, we're getting theological, but this is important, people. So open theism says the future to God is open. So like for me, it's open because I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But God, I believe God knows all things, like beginning to end. He knows it all. Nothing happens is outside of his control. Open theism says why do bad things like that happen? Because God's good, so he wouldn't let that happen. You know what? God's good and he's all powerful, but even he doesn't know the future. So the way he coped with this was by changing the character of God. What I want to offer you this week is what the Bible is going to talk about. God is good. 
He's never not in charge. He's never not in control. He has a plan. The question is, can I trust him? So here's your, here's your four questions to walk away with, and then I'm going to go really fast. Three statements and then a final question for you to ask. If God is sovereign, if you truly believe God's sovereign, you have to wrestle with this, then every single circumstance in your life has never once been out of his control, and it never ever will be in the future out of his control. Number two, if God is good, then nothing he does is ever for an evil purpose. And number three, if God never sleeps, then please, Christian, understand he sees you. He knows you. He knows what you're going through right now in your life. He's not surprised by it. It hasn't taken him by storm. He understood the valley you would walk through. He knows the valleys you will walk through, and he's with you. His presence is with you. We're going to talk about that this week. Now, here's the question. Can you trust in the God who providentially controls the circumstances of your life? Can you trust him? Now, the Sunday school answer is yes, but you know what I mean. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. All right, I'm going to give you a couple of questions to walk away with. And again, these are all online. Um, normally there's like a scripture in action, so you don't, you're not going to have any time to talk about this right now. But throughout the week, I'll give you questions to ponder. And here's a couple. In your, if you want to go further here and renew your mind, you could ask this question. Where do you see examples in your own life where you've tried to chase contentment by changing your external circumstances? Where are situations in your life, examples, where you tried to chase contentment by changing your external circumstances? And then number two, after studying the character of God tonight, did you notice any areas where you had a wrong understanding of God? Now, this may be that you didn't know God was totally in control, and this is the first time you heard about that. That might be something. But it may be this. Huh, I always believe God's sovereign. But I guess I didn't think that if he's sovereign, that means he knows what happened. But I'm pretty angry about that. That might be the kind of question you deal with. And that's okay. That's good to know those things. This week, I want you to be thinking about those. I want to give you a book recommendation, and I'm going to get out of your face. All right, this is Chasing Contentment by Eric Raymond. It's really good. I would highly recommend it. It's an easy read. It's only like this thick and maybe like this big. And it will help you to renew your mind. He has some great stories. He has a really good chapter on shiny objects and glittery wrap, like, like things that look so good, but they really aren't. Oh, it's a good book. So let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll, we'll pack it up for the night. Father, we love you. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for this uh, time together where we can study this topic. Lord, I pray that as a result of our studies this week, God, we would learn contentment. We would see where we need to grow in contentment and that you would uh, give us grace to trust in you, God, for whatever's happened and whatever will happen in our lives, knowing that you, God, love us, you see us, and you're always in charge doing the good thing. Father, we love you. In your son's name we pray, amen.